of evil. It's an interesting piece of inspired scripture, Proverbs chapter 1. And I think as we approach the book of Proverbs, I've spoken to several pastors leading up to this moment. And I mentioned that I was preparing and studying to preach and teach through the book of Proverbs. And each of them said to me, how are you planning on doing it? How are you planning on preaching through the book of Proverbs? And as you can tell, you cannot go essentially word by word, verse by verse. It would take forever. But, but to preach through this book is, is to simply approach this text as inspired scripture. We must remind ourselves that this is the word of God. That while Solomon is writing, every one of these verses, every word is important. But what we're seeing here is, is truth and wisdom amplified. Now, we live in an age where there is much knowledge, but no wisdom. There's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of understanding with regard to things of the world, but there's no wisdom, there's no discernment. As verse number four says, discretion. Discretion. This is to teach young man, the young man, the young women, knowledge and discretion or discernment. This entire book is about practical wisdom. It's so practical. You can see this just the way that chapter is laid out. The prologue, the introduction in the first seven verses. And then there's a, the wisdom's foundation is the fear of the Lord moving into the middle part of that chapter. And the latter part of the chapter is a warning. There's wisdom's warning. Really, when we look at what wisdom is, practical wisdom found in the book of Proverbs, we see how to think biblically. We see how to navigate uh, life, how to think rightly. This requires the renewing of our mind. To rightly understand the book of Proverbs, we must have a right understanding of what the law is. Because many people say, why are you going to preach through the book of Proverbs? Because there's no gospel there. Well, I beg to differ. You can't understand the book of Proverbs without having a right understanding of, of the gospel. You see, all around the world, even right now, there are men and women, false religions, who are teaching works-based salvation. Do this, check the box, fill in the blank. You've earned it. You've worked your way there. That's actually the only two uh, way, the only two approaches to religion are either works-based salvation, which is false religion, or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The law, dear ones, was never meant to save. The law was meant to lead us as a schoolmaster to Jesus Christ, the one who has kept the law, that by faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us, and we are born again by the Spirit of God. This is, this is really... Yeah, they're downstairs. Good to see you. We're born again, and then, therefore, we see that the law cannot save, but we see that the law is reflected of who God is, right? So we see that the, the law is good, that there's a way to live in accordance with the law. There's a way to live in, in the desires and the holiness of God, and, and that's what we see here in the book of Proverbs. Keeping this fine line, walking this fine line is not going to save, the, save us. What we see here is a stark contrast between darkness and light and law and grace. Now the, the book begins, and I pray that we get further than verse number one. I know we will. I promise you that we will get away from verse number one tonight. But I think it's very important that we understand who is writing 
and his situation and everything that's surrounding um, the gifted wisdom that God has given to Solomon. Notice verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon. Proverbs literally means, either you can translate it this way, a parable, a riddle. The book of Proverbs defines a proverb as dark sayings, making right decisions in a, in a split second time. Solomon is the wisest man that has ever lived. He's the son of David. David is the man after God's own heart. The name Solomon means peaceable. It means peaceable. This is not David's oldest son. Who was David's oldest son? Being in with an A. No, but he was one that wrote actually chapter 30. Agur. Absalom was David's oldest son. Absalom was, had his hair caught in, a, in an oak tree and he was hung by his hair in the rebellion against David. Where does Solomon fit into the birth order? And, and, and who, how about this? Who was Solomon's mother? Does anybody know? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Solomon was Bathsheba's son. But she had another son. And now let's just think about this. Bathsheba was originally married to, to Uriah. And David had Uriah killed. Now, there was a, an affair that took place there with Bathsheba. And the resulting pregnancy, uh, the baby that was born was, was, was dying. And, and we remember that story well. And, and the baby actually died. And, and David, David rejoiced in a sense that when the baby died, he knew that the baby went immediately into the arms of God and he took off his sackcloth and his ashes and he, he, he worshipped God. And his, his servants were actually confused by that, but, but we, have, we can learn much from that situation. And after the baby died, then Solomon was conceived and Solomon was born. That's the man that we're talking about, is the son of David. He is not the oldest son of David. He is the son of Bathsheba. You can find that account in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But the interesting thing that God gifted Solomon with wisdom, because whenever God appeared to Solomon in a dream, he essentially said to Solomon, I'll give you anything that you want. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And it pleased the heart of God that Solomon would want such a precious characteristic. I like the story of the two harlots that Solomon encountered during his reign as king. The two harlots became pregnant. Each gave birth to a son nearly simultaneously. And in the night, one of the sons died. You can find this account in 1 Kings chapter uh, 3. And one of the women tried to, to essentially steal the child of the other harlot. Both women came before King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, and there was an interesting uh, court appearance that took place. And the one woman was blaming the other woman for switching the babies in the night. And finally, Solomon says, what did Solomon say? Get the sword. Get the sword and we'll divide this baby in half. And, and there, therein lies the point that I'm bringing this up to you for is that what wisdom he knew that a mother's love was sacrificial. Isn't that interesting? A mother's love is sacrificial to the extent that when Solomon pulled up the sword, 
The, the woman that was lying said, yeah, divide that baby. But the woman whose child it was, she said, just give, her, just give the son to her. Let, let her have him. She would, rather, she would rather lose possession of the child and give him away if it meant that he would live. And Solomon knew this. What wisdom that he would force the issue. And, and in doing so, he determined that uh, he determined whose, whose child it, it really was only by the giftedness of wisdom. We also find that the queen of Sheba, which would have been the queen of, of the south mentioned in the New Testament, she, she traveled in a caravan bringing all sorts of wonderful gifts and, and, and came in her, her caravan to see Solomon and test his wisdom with many questions. And as she tested him, she said, surely that his wisdom is more than they've talked about. Surely his wisdom exceeds what has been described throughout all the earth. We're talking about a very wise man. But, this is a, this is a big, this is a big pause. What happened at the end of Solomon's life? What's that? Not Solomon. Seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines, a thousand women. Now I don't, you know, I don't claim to be any kind of scholar or a wise man, but I can tell you that that is not wise. That's not wise. He did. He went crazy. You're right. He went crazy. He had a thousand what? He had a thousand women. He had three hundred concubines and seven hundred wives. And you say, well, then was Solomon actually saved? Because if he ran into such grievous error and he abandoned such a gift of wisdom, can can we say that if if a man falls into such wickedness and sin, and after being gifted with such wisdom, could we say that actually Solomon is in heaven right now? Well, if you, study, if you study 1 Kings chapter 11, you'll see that the Lord chastened Solomon. The Lord chastised Solomon. He sent, he sent conquerors to him. And, and Solomon was chastened to such a degree that we know. Why? The, the Lord chastens whom he hates? No, he chastens whom he loves. Solomon made a big blunder. Solomon, this man that's penning this book, even in all of his infinite wisdom, pursued many different women, many different wives, concubines. And, and if you, again, if you study 1 Kings chapter 3, you're going to see that, that those wives led him to sin against God. He was even offering sacrifices to, to false gods, and, and God chastened him. That's, not only is that a, a comforting truth to behold as a believer, that God loves us and that when we sin, he will chasten us. He will bring us back to himself. It's not if we sin, it's when we sin. He will chasten us. He will bring us back to himself. He loves us as a, as a loving father. Whereas those who are reprobate, he, he allows them to continue in their sin like Pharaoh. Whenever we read in the book of Genesis that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it happens 10 times all throughout the book of, of Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You just read it continually. All God had to do was just let him continue in his sin. Just let him do what was natural. 
And we see that what was natural was to pursue the Israelites into the bottom of the Red Sea, and God brought the Red Sea right over top. This is, these, these are the things that when we consider the love of God, when we, when we see that God will not allow his children, to fall, his children to fall completely in sin, he brings them back, he calls them back, he loves them back, he shows us grace. Same thing happened with Solomon. He was the wisest man that ever lived, despite his great sinfulness at the end of his life. Have you ever heard this phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Solomon was literally the king of the world. He was literally the king of the world, insomuch that he understood that he, had, he was the wisest man and he took on a thousand women. It's a very dangerous place whenever a man has a little bit of power. It's, it's, it's such, that's why throughout the entire New Testament, you see the, the language of humility, right? Do you know that the, the key, what's the key to understanding your Bible? You hear this all the time. I just don't understand it. I just don't get it. What's the key to understanding your Bible? Reading it. Reading it. Ask God. Unbelievers, read it too. Yeah, ask God. You need the Spirit to help. Yes. The Spirit, helps, yes. The, the Spirit teaches us, leads us. But the key to understanding your Bible is humility. You come to the Scriptures with a humble heart, forsaking pride. If you want to know what this book teaches, come with a humble heart. Seeking God with humility. If we have the twinge, the slightest twinge of power, it's so dangerous. It's, it's like playing with fire. Leaders in the church are continuously reminded in the New Testament that we are to be humble servants, slaves, right? There's that slave language all throughout the, the New Testament that teaches us that we should be serving Christ, serving his people. In fact, that's what the word deacon means. It means a waiter. It means a servant. I remember being in one of these little uh, turnpike gas stations one time where you get the little license plates with your name on them. I was a little kid, you know, and I'm spinning that thing. I'm like, I bet I can't find deacon in here, you know, because no, there's not many people, you know, named deacon. And there it was, deacon. And on these little license plates was the name and then what the name means. So you have like Peter, and it means a rock, and you have Tom, which means, I don't know what Tom means, but then I get to, <laughs> I get to deacon, and, and I see a waiter. I was a little kid. I had no idea. I'm like, my name is, oh, I don't like my name anymore. I know that means a butler, a waiter. But after I came to the understanding of, of who Jesus was, and I was born again, I saw that, oh, wait a minute, that's what we've been called to do. We've been called to be servants, not only of Jesus Christ, but of each other. If you want to understand your Bible, dear ones, approach it with humility. Proverbs are short, pithy sayings expressing timeless truth and wisdom. They're parables, as verse 3 says, they're dark sayings. Wisdom is the ability to discern righteously. It's supernatural. The world does not have the gift of wisdom. They have worldly wisdom. They do not have God-centered, Christ-centered wisdom. It's a supernatural gift that comes from knowing God. Humility is the key to wisdom. If you want to be wise, be humble. And that's what this is chocked full of. Could you, did you see it in there? A wise man will hear, verse number 5, and will increase in learning. What does he say? A wise man will listen. 
A wise man will listen, he will hear. And not only will he listen, he will listen with the intent to understand. He will increase learning. You, you can always learn from somebody. You can always learn from your, you can even learn from your enemies. You, you, there's, a, there's an element of wisdom that is continually keeping the ears open. You can learn something from everyone. It's, it's important for us to, to be humble enough to say, even if we disagree, there's something to be learned from them. A wise man will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. To understand a proverb and, to, and the interpretation or the illustration or the picture, the words of the wise, verse 6, and their dark sayings. Then, then we come to verse number 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools don't want to listen. Fools despise wisdom. They despise discretion because it demands something from them. The word fool literally means to be damned. It means to be committed to hell. It means to be so rejecting God and his truth that you are completely averse to reality. A fool despises wisdom. They don't want it. They want to do their own thing. They are God. There are many highly educated fools. There really are. You don't have to be someone, you know, this is, people think about the word fool. You think about somebody that's just being silly or they've never attained or they, you know, they're, they're mediocre. What Solomon is addressing here is, are those who think that they're really wise. They're the ones with the placard on the wall. They're the ones with the signed. They, 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 can, be play, they can be parading their knowledge, but they have no wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's explore this a little bit. The fear. To fear God means to respect or reverence God. It's to have piety. Wisdom means shrewdness, prudence, ethical discernment. I think this is a... Would you not say that this is the cry that the world needs to hear right now to have ethical discernment? How do you, how do you arrive at ethical discernment? You, you search the scriptures. You see what God desires and then therefore you desire what God desires. Instruction means discipline, chastisement, and correction. Proverbs are to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. That's the main goal of our Christian life is to be more like Jesus that's what Proverbs do. Proverbs are supposed to conform us to Jesus' image. Then pick this up here in verse 8. My son. What familial language. My son. Solomon is speaking here. My son. Every man wants to leave a legacy. Every man wants to leave wisdom with his child. Above all, he, a man wants to leave his son or his daughter with the knowledge of Christ. My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Do you see it there? There's humility again. What do we see on every TV commercial, every single cartoon, every single television show? Mom and dad are dumb. Right? The world is teaching that the children know best. If you don't think that I'm right in this, just take a van full of teenagers 
and say, where do you want to go to eat? You're going to have 13 different answers. And they're all going to be fighting over which direction you're to go. And if the driver or the leader says, we're going to go to Wendy's, everybody's going to say, no, I don't want to go there. There's a natural aversion in a child's heart. There's a natural rebellion, no matter what. There's, there's this natural resistance against the father and mother. And this proverb says, listen to your father. Listen to your mother. There's wisdom there. Learn from them. Where the world says, no, don't listen to mom and dad. You don't need them. You do your own thing. You'll figure it out. The Proverbs are full of this kind of language. For they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, chains about thy neck. My son of sinners entice thee. This bloody language that continues through verses 9 through 19. It's, it's having this picture, this, this righteous, this Christ follower that is getting asked to come with the deceitful and the destructive and the bloodthirsty. You have two contrasts there. A believer in Jesus Christ is not going to follow after the bloodthirsty and run with that crowd. They're just not going to do it because it is a contrary to the will of God. Verses 9 through 19 push the son away from those things. Notice that in verse 20, that wisdom cries without. Picture this, that there is a, there's a righteous, truthful woman who is outside the city gates And she's crying out. She's crying out to the conscience. She's crying out to the heart. She's crying out gospel proclamation. And what you're going to see through this entire book is that that wisdom is illustrated by this righteous woman. Wisdom is pictured as this noble, righteous, prudent, faithful woman. It paints a picture of beauty. It paints a picture of righteous desire. And she cries, she cries without, she cries outside of the city with her voice. She says, listen to me. She cries in the chief place of the concourse in the opening of the gates, verse 21. The city, she utters the word saying, how long will you simple people, your simple ones, will you love simplicity? How long will you desire the things that are contrary to wisdom? Verse 22, in the middle of verse 22, and the scorners delight in their scorning and the fools hate knowledge. Turn you to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you because I have called and you refused. I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Verse 25, but you have said it not all my counsel and would not of my reproof. You didn't want it. And notice what what this imagery is painting in verse 26. I'll laugh at you. I will laugh at your calamity. That is powerful language there when Solomon says, if you think that you can resist wisdom your entire life, come the day of judgment, you're going to desire wisdom and wisdom's going to laugh at you. She's been calling to you all along. The, The world has nowhere to hide. This wisdom is on every corner. Every time you pass a church, every time you hear the gospel, every time your conscience pricks you to say these things are not right. Solomon says that wisdom's going to laugh. They'll seek to find. Look at verse number 31. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their ways. That's a pretty clear indication of, of 
you're going to receive what you have stored up. You have failed to follow wisdom. You've desired the things that are contrary to God. Wisdom's going to laugh at you in the day of judgment. And you shall eat of what you, you, you'll lie in the bed that you made. It's very close to what is said in Romans chapter 1. When the Apostle Paul is talking about God giving them over to a reprobate mind after they knew the glory of God. In verse 24 of Romans 1, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts and dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up. God let them go. God gave them up unto their vile affections. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the phone or in an email or a text message or a face-to-face conversation where somebody has said to me, why doesn't God just wipe them all out? And I'm thinking, first of all, that's not according to God's plan and grace. Second of all, how do you know that you're not going to be a part of that? God, there's something worse than God just coming down and making it a a barren wasteland, just wiping out all the bad and and because of your self-righteousness keeping you. You know what I mean? There's something much worse than that. It's letting them do what they want. If you want to parade gay marriage and you want to parade LGBTQ issues, you want to parade abortions, you want to parade all of these sinful actions, God's going to say go. And therefore is your judgment. Because then you'll see insanity. You'll see an absolute disconnection from wisdom. God just says, go. I'm going to give you up to your sinfulness that you so desire. God gives them over to a reprobate mind, the next verses say. Literally a mind of insanity. A mind that is void of wisdom. God gives them up to their vile affections. Verse 26, for even their women did change the natural use into into that which is against nature and likewise also men, etc., etc. Interesting how it's not only today, this was even in the first century when Paul was writing this. And probably the gay people, you know, they read that. Don't they understand what it means? Or? Oh, they choose not to read that. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of scripture that, I mean, you have Leviticus 18, you have Deuteronomy that talks about dressing like a woman, how it's contrary to what God has ordained. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe it is, that said um, then effeminate or homosexuals or those who abuse uh, their created design, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then there's the verse that we, if you ever encounter uh, someone who is living a homosexual lifestyle, this is what's crazy. I actually was sitting with a pastor, and we'll, we'll end here because we're over time, but um, I was sitting with a pastor, a pastor in our area, who, who has bit the bait of um, liberalism, I would say, with regard to homosexuality. And his remark was, and just, just because I, I really need to be careful about quoting somebody and not quoting him exactly, but to paraphrase, he said, as a church, we're not concerned with somebody living, we're not concerned with someone leaving their homosexual lifestyle. And, and I thought, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say anything, but this is a prevalent argument today. 
that, look, all we really want is just to have people come into the church and if they're homosexuals and they're living in homosexual sin and they're living in a homosexual lifestyle, we're not really concerned about that. All we really want to know is if they know the gospel. That's essentially what this pastor was saying. And, and I was so caught off guard and so taken back by this that, that I, I just was hoping that he would kind of reverse course and say something different. Let me just put this out there that we are most definitely concerned with someone leaving the homosexual lifestyle. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, and let's go there, let's just end there, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I hope I'm in the right... I'm... Look at verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's pretty, I mean, there's a blanket statement. That includes liars. <laughs> I mean, anyone that's unrighteous, apart from the faith that has been imputed to them by, apart from the righteousness that has been imputed to them by faith in Jesus Christ, he's talking about those that are unrepentant. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. That's either with Male or female, or male with male, female with female. Fornication is fornication. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. If you lay with someone that is not your husband or your wife, you've committed adultery. And Jesus went as far as to say, if you look at a woman with lust, or if you look at a man with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You, you've, you're, bang, you're unrighteous. That's, that's the law. Nor effeminate. That word effeminate... Either can mean LGBTQ as transgenders. It can also mean those that are parading as a, they are a physical man, but they're parading as a woman or vice versa. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. It's very important. If you're using a translation that only has a feminine and then not the second word, the second word means those who are male prostitutes for male, for male buyers. I think it, it says male prostitutes. Nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. The second word there is male prostitutes for homosexual prostitution. So there's a, that, that's a pretty clear statement. I mean, I would go as far as to say that our Bibles don't translate that powerfully enough. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That means that they're unsaved. But praise be to God for verse 11. Such were some of you. But, <laughs> there's where you love the buts of the Bible. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What has happened? The Spirit of God has come into your life, washed you in the blood of Christ, made you born again, brought about repentance, given you faith, and now you live in newness of life, pursuing the wisdom of God. What a remarkable work that God has done in our lives. Such were some of you we guys we are most definitely concerned with homosexuals leaving the homosexual lifestyle that to 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 allow open and blatant sin into the church is as paul said a little leaven leavens the whole whole lump and what he's talking about is that no you don't have to have this perfect church you just have to have a repentance a repentant church that desires righteousness where each of us in this room is battling sin every one of us is battling sin 
but it's not an open, unrepentant sin. When we say, oh yeah, whatever, it's just all under grace, that's a problem. Okay, I can keep going all night long. I think we'll, they'll read that and they'll just say, well, you're a sinner too, just like me. And it's like, that's yeah. what you're saying. The difference is, we repent, we know we're sin, we a conviction, we know that's wrong. They, they still choose, this is the way I'm born. And I always say, well, I was born a sinner too. Like, all of us were born sinners. So you could argue that you were born that way, fine. Well, I was born a sinner as well, and I repented, and I, you know, and so, and, you know, I think that's what they overlook. They just said, well, you're all sinners too. So why yeah. are you worse than that they decide to continue living the lifestyle, which, which you're saying is the difference, I agree. I just couldn't believe that I was hearing a pastor say this, that we're not concerned with their leaving a homosexual lifestyle. We just want them to come in contact with the gospel. To, a, to an extent, that's, that's true. I mean, because the gospel will change them. But if they're just saying, yeah, I believe the gospel, and continuing in that sin, that's, a, that's, that's not conversion. That, that's not conversion. There will be repentance there. Um, have you ever heard of the, the W... D-J-D? Well, that's W-W-J-D. I, I, I mean W-D-J-D. What did Jesus do? This is an easy way to evangelize. Just, just it's an acronym. W-D-J-D. And you have, have you heard this? W-D-J-D. W, would you consider yourself a good person? That's the question. Would you consider yourself a good person? And usually if you ask somebody that question, oh yeah. Okay. Do you know the Ten Commandments? There's D. Let's compare your goodness with D. What are the Ten Commandments? Have you ever told a lie? Oh, have you ever stolen anything? Yeah. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? So you're telling me that you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. You buy your own admission. Some of you may be thinking that this is sounding rather familiar. But you still consider yourself a good person. J, what would God determine, based on your own affirmation, on Judgment Day, are you saved or lost? Just by comparing your life to the Ten Commandments. You've already admitted that you're guilty and that you're lost and you're in need of a Savior. So we should come to Christ, repent of our sins and trust in Him. Very simple evangelistic method. Okay, now we have five minutes. Questions, thoughts?